Lexicon Valley is brought to you by MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate a clear voice, an intentional tone, and just the right word. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. The following podcast contains explicit language. Seriously, explicit doesn't begin to describe it. You think I'm kidding? This is one of the most foul-mouthed podcasts we've ever produced. So, you've been warned. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 28, titled A Brief History of Swearing, wherein we discuss the new book, Holy Shit, by Melissa Moore. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. Yourself? I'm great. So... In the first minute or two of this podcast, I often read a complimentary email or two from listeners. Once or twice, I even read some criticism. Criticism, I think, of you, if I remember correctly, not of me, of course. Heaven forfend. But actually, here's a complaint about us. Mm -hmm. Sarah MKS wrote, I'm not sure if there is really a reason for the intermittent foul language used by the hosts. They often sound fairly gratuitous. Maybe one podcast can be devoted to the variety and purpose of such language. Now, that's a great idea. Yeah, it's a fantastic idea. Uh, But as to her criticism, I thought the whole point of profanity was to be gratuitous. I don't know about the whole point, but certainly a point. In any case, as it happens, a wonderful book called Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing was published just last month. It's by Melissa Moore who has a Ph.D. in Renaissance literature, and the book grew out of her dissertation at Stanford. Now, just a few things before we get to our interview with her. It's hard to know for sure whether people swear more today than they used to because they didn't used to keep track of these things, right? For example, a very famous word frequency list was compiled in the 1940s using written publications like Reader's Digest, not exactly a true representation of how people actually talked. There are even some studies of spoken English at the time, but they actually made a point to exclude the bad words. Again, not very helpful. But then things started to change. In the 1960s, one psychologist had his students surreptitiously record conversations in three different social settings. He then compiled a list of the 50 most frequently used words in each setting and picked out the words that were common to all three lists. For the most part, these were articles, prepositions, and pronouns, but there were actually four others. Can you guess what they are? Uh, Fiduciary, phlegmatic, peristalsis, and... Incalcitrant? And incalcitrant. Yeah, it was was right on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) Uh, None of those words made any of the lists. No, the four others that made all three lists were damn hell, fuck, and shit. And now, in the 21st century, we have a much better sense of how often people swear. A few years ago, a psychologist named Timothy Jay calculated that, on average, about 0.7% of the words we use are what he called taboo words. The individual range was between 0%, people who never swear, and 3%, hmm. people you know, named Bob Garfield. <laughs> I probably index high. 
So the title of Melissa Moore's book, Holy Shit, is actually more meaningful than it might seem. She divides swearing into two major categories. The holy refers to religious oaths, goddammit, things like that. And the shit part of holy shit, well, here's Melissa Moore. And the shit refers to what we now consider to be obscene words, which would be sort of sexual obscenities, excremental obscenities, and I also then lump into their racial slurs, which I would also consider to be bodily obscenities. Your book is set up chronologically, right? It unpacks about 2,000 years of swearing. You call it a brief history of swearing. It's not... <laughs> The book is brief, yeah. The time span is huge, but the, the book is brief. And it begins with ancient Rome. And before mm-hmm. we get into some specifics there, how is it that we know so much about Roman swearing? So we have a lot of graffiti that was preserved in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted. It basically covered the whole town and killed everyone immediately. And the graffiti that was written on walls was preserved intact. What was the form of the graffiti? I mean, was it chiseled? I mean, there were no Sharpies or spray cans. Yeah, no, I think they would scratch it, especially if it were sort of a softer brick or clay. Or I think they would use charcoal. Can you give me an example of what kinds of graffiti we're talking about? Is it something similar to what we would read on a bathroom wall in the 21st century? It was very similar. You have a lot of graffiti found in the brothel, the lupinar of Pompeii. And so there's a lot of people writing, I fucked here, I fucked here, and then I went home. So-and-so is a good fuck. Somebody licks cunt and people bragging about the size of their penis and things like that. Now, in order to understand how Romans used their insults and their swear words, I think we need to understand a bit about their sexual politics. I want to read a few sentences from your book. Mm -hmm. You write... Our categories of heterosexual and homosexual were meaningless in Rome. It was assumed that, quote, normal men would want to sleep with women, boys, and sometimes adult men, and that each type of partner provided different pleasures and problems. What a man did with these various partners, you write, was the key thing. Yes, they had obviously a very different conception of sexuality and what was normal and abnormal, and... The normal, fully masculine man, yes, would penetrate all these different kinds of people, but he just had to be the active partner. What was stigmatized in Rome was male passivity. So a man could penetrate a vagina, which was the kind of Roman F-word, futuo. He could penetrate an anus of either a woman or boy, and that was pedicare, or he could penetrate the mouth of an adult man, and that was called irumo. So a famous Roman poet Marshall has an epigram where a woman is reproaching her husband because he doesn't want to do pedicare with her. He doesn't want to do pedicatio with her. He doesn't want to use her asshole. He prefers the assholes of boys. And she says, but, you know, you can do this with me. And he says, no, you know, your asshole is so inferior to those of boys that you should say you have two cunts. You know, you can't even call your asshole an asshole. So these three words, futuo, pedicare, and irumo, give rise to a whole different way of insulting people. (laughs) You said whole different way. A whole different way. (laughs) So Bob's pun notwithstanding, this distinction between penetrating and being penetrated extended to all orifices. (laughs) And the way in which you would use these words to insult somebody would be to suggest they were being penetrated, right? Like, in other words, accusing somebody of performing cunnilingus was actually an insult because it's tantamount 
to having your mouth penetrated by a woman, right? To getting fucked in the mouth, essentially. Yes, yes. So that was the worst insult that you could use at a Roman man, because yes, it's the woman fucking the man in his mouth. So if you wanted to threaten a Roman, you would say, you know, I'll fuck you in the mouth. I'm going to your roommate you. I'm going to make you a passive recipient. Can we break away from linguistics for just one moment to discuss sociology? Uh-huh. I'm struck by the supply and demand problem that I thought about while reading about Roman sexual practices. You've mentioned the stigma attached to being on the receiving end, the, the mm-hmm. passive end of various sexual acts. If it's deemed normal to be a pitcher and deviant to be a catcher, who would be a catcher? Well, women are sort of by default, you know, catchers, and that's sort of tied up with the role of women in Roman society. They were more or less housebound, and there were a lot of restrictions on Roman women. But the supply and demand was solved by slaves. There were a huge number of slaves in the Roman Empire, and they didn't have any dignity to lose, is the kind of horrible answer to the question. You called a fully masculine man in Latin, you called him a veer, and that implied, you know, the active sexual penetration, but also self-control. Is that veer as in virile or veer as in virtue? Both, both. Yes, a virtuous man would be one who is an active penetrator. (laughs) Yes. So a virile Roman citizen could have sex with other men. He just had to do the penetrating. Exactly. And there's an example of a um, Roman general who was accused of effeminacy. And he said to his accuser, he said, Suilius, you know, ask your sons. They will confess that I am a man. The idea is that he's not effeminate. He's not passive. He's sodomized his accuser's sons. That proves that he's a real man. And interestingly, one of the most obscene terms in ancient Rome was their word for clitoris. And again, Mm -hmm. this has to do with the way that their sexual politics were intertwined with power and domination and this idea of penetrating versus being penetrated. Yes, so landica is the word for clitoris. And since they had this idea that sex was only and all about penetration, they thought that lesbians had enormous clitorises, which they would use to penetrate. They considered this to be a horrible abnormality because the big clitoris of lesbians was thought to be monstrous. And so that ended up being a very powerful obscenity. Can I, can I just volunteer something here? Sure. Of the two of us, as our listeners no doubt have come to realize, I'm the um, potty mouth. Swearing is a big part of my life. I think it's useful and uh, enjoyable and expressive and everything else. And uh, But I got to tell you, I am so uncomfortable right now. (laughs) You know, maybe it's the mammoth clitoris. Maybe it's the sodomizing of uh, senators' children. I don't know, but mom, wherever you are, I apologize. (laughs) This is definitely the dirtiest conversation I've ever had with a total stranger. Or will ever have, I should hope. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I have these conversations all the time. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe we should use this as an opportunity to pivot away from ancient Rome. Lexicon Valley is sponsored this week by MailChimp. If you have a business, big or small, and regularly send out newsletters, product updates, event invitations, announcements of any kind over email, then MailChimp will help you design, create, send, and track all of it. They'll even help you market your newsletter on social media. And if you have less than 2,000 subscribers, it's free. To read more about the company and the services they provide, go to MailChimp.com.
MailChimp.com. That's MailChimp.com. Okay, back to the interview with Melissa Moore. So for a long time throughout the Middle Ages and even into the early Renaissance, the most taboo swear words were of the holy variety, right? Mm -hmm. When and why did the pendulum swing? Well, the pendulum swung in England because of the influence of the Bible and the importance of Christianity. And in the Bible, both the good oaths, the oaths that God wants you to swear, and the oaths that you shouldn't swear are oaths by God, by God's bones, by God's heart, precious blood, all these sort of God's body part oaths were really shocking. So during ancient Roman times, our body parts were the most shocking, and now Mm -hmm. during the Middle Ages, it was God's body parts. Yeah, there was this idea that Christ has a physical body. You know, when he died, his physical body ascended into heaven, and now it sits there at the right hand of God. And when you swear, your words can actually take pieces of his body. They actually injure his body that sits in heaven. So when you're saying damn you or sacre bleu or mm-hmm. or just plain Jesus Christ, that's a bad oath. Yes. And that was the most profane things one could say? That sort of almost sounds hard to believe because m- most of our obscene words today are quite old. And so, for example, cunt is first seen in the 13th century and, you know, shit is 9th century fuck is a little bit newer, but those words existed in the Middle Ages, and they appear everywhere. Kind of the only conclusion is these were not bad words. They just were the kind of normal, direct words for what they represent. And you can see that the O's were the ones that people worried about because there are endless controversies about swearing and vain swearing, and people wrote huge numbers of tracts about how sinful and evil this is, and, you know, people would say regularly that swearing vainly was worse than murder. You know, that's one of the most revealing things about the book, is the discontinuity of the historical arc of propriety. Mm -hmm. I would have drawn a straight line from today, going back to, let's say, the Romans, assuming we're loose with language now, and the farther back you go, the more restricted it was. But au contraire, the advent of Christianity changed the entire ecosystem. And in fact, words like cunt and other what we now consider obscenities were so ubiquitous at the time that they appeared in medical texts, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a, well, several treaties where they're talking about the organization of the organs of the body, and it says, you know, well, the bladder is attached to the neck of the cunt. There's actually even a grammar that was made for schoolboys. It was to learn Latin. It talks about the parts of the body in Latin and in English, and, you know, it's got arse, and then gives a Latin word, the asshole gives a Latin word, you know, the tarse, which is an old word for penis, you know, so it's, these were even appearing in a book designed to teach seven-year-old boys to learn Latin. If we put those words in books for children now, we would be arrested. Yes. <laughs> yes. Almost think that children might be more interested in learning to read. I don't think I want you teaching my kids. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm dying to meet yours, though. Just yeah. dying. <laughs> so, beginning in the 1700s or so, the pendulum swings back again mm-hmm. with the human body again becoming the major source of our taboo words. And not just taboo words for our body parts and our excretory functions and our sexual acts, but for, for let's say, the word leg. At some point in the Victorian era, leg was simply too vulgar to say aloud? 
Yes, leg was vulgar, and yes, you had to say limb, and even better than limb was lower extremity. You write in the book, and I'm quoting here, Throughout the 18th century, it had become more and more taboo to reveal certain body parts and actions in polite society or to mention them in polite conversation. Even to hint that they existed became a terrible faux pas. You talk about three ways in which some of these body parts or body functions were euphemized. One is through a kind of indirection. So, for example, instead of saying that somebody was pregnant, you would talk about them being in confinement or being in a certain condition. Or you might give them Latin terms. So to pee became to micturate, to shit became defecate, kiss, oscillate, spit, expectorate, sweat, perspire. Mm -hmm. Or you would give them French terms. And the degree to which this euphemization becomes absurd is illustrated, I think, in a section of your book called Gamahush, Godamish, and the Huffle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Victorians, I mean, they were, I suppose, not funny. I suppose maybe it's normal human nature. But at the same time that you had all these incredible euphemisms and, you know, the inability to say leg, you had a great sexual underground where you had books. You could purchase books that went through the Covent Garden prostitutes and listed all the things that they would do and, you know, how much it costs. And so you had a lot of terms for various sex acts that were sort of euphemized and sort of made to sound better by using French words. So you had gamahouche, which is oral sex, godamiche, which is a dildo, and the huffle is oral sex again. And then there was larking. Yes, and there's a kind of funny scholarly debate about larking, about what, you know, what does it mean? <laughs> and, <laughs> and some people argued that that also was a term for oral sex. But then a scholar called Gordon Williams found an illustration of a person called the larking cull. And then it, he determined that this actually meant having sex between the woman's breasts. Which we have a perfectly acceptable term for nowadays. Titty fucking? What? Do you, what's the term? Yeah. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. sort of more or less acceptable. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> acceptable in this company. Yes, in this company, yes. There's one moment in, in this book that just made me gasp. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of moments that made me go, aha. There were a lot of moments uh, that made me cringe. But there was one that made me gasp, and that was to discover that one of the literature's greatest contributors misused a word. <laughs> Because it was a swear word, and he didn't know what it meant. Yeah, yeah, Robert Browning, yeah, using twat in a poem. Because he had seen a satire, I think, from the 17th century, where somebody said, you know, oh, we'll give him a cardinal's hat, I'll give him a soon a nun's twat. And he thought that was sort of a wimple or something. And so he put it in his own poem. And then at some point, someone noticed that he had this obscene word in there, but then given that it was a Victorian era, they, they couldn't mention it. Bob, is that what you meant? You meant to say twat? So in other words, the age was so prudish that somebody like Robert Browning could grow into adulthood without ever learning that word. Yes, yes. Why do we even need bad words? I mean, I know there's a kind of duality to the universe and where there's dark, there's light, and where there's up, there's down. Can we have an English language that doesn't have any taboo words? What would that be like for us psychologically? Is it possible? Um, definitely various people have thought that that was a good idea. There was a Yugoslavian linguist who thought that swearing would disappear with the advent of socialism. Instead, what disappeared was Yugoslavia. <laughs> <Go figure. laughs> yeah. 
And Lenny Bruce thought that, you know, a lot of his routines are based on repeating racial slurs or sexual obscenities until they sort of sound like nonsense words with the idea that then they'd lose some of their charge and that eventually you'd have a world without swear words and this would be some place where people never had any conflict. I got three clacks here. Do I hear five clacks? I got five clacks. Do I hear six picks? I got six picks. Do I hear seven niggas? I got seven niggas. Sold American. <laughs> I've passed with seven niggas, six picks, five nicks, four clacks, three guineas, and one wop. You almost punched me out, didn't you? <laughs> you know, I think that people need swear words because they're the best words we have to insult other people, which, you know, is a kind of function of language, sort of whether we like it or not. But they're also really powerful words to express joy and pain. And this has to do with how they affect us physically. I mean, they're stored in different areas of the brain and they're very tied up with our sympathetic nervous system. So I think we need a class of words like that to really express various emotions. Melissa, in in your life, do you swear? Uh, No, not really. Although my children might say differently. I mean, is it like the person who works in the bakery who eventually can't stand sweets? Or is it a moral issue? Why not? I think maybe I'm a sort of good bourgeois person, and I I don't like to offend people, and I don't like to shock people, contrary to all all evidence I've just given you. And I have had a lot of experience talking to people about this book. You know, the power of these words has just been demonstrated over and over to me, where people sort of begin thinking a little bit, you know, as you did, like, oh, this is sort of funny and cool. And then I start swearing and they get offended and they get uncomfortable. And so I I generally, in my personal life, don't like to do that. And people whose sort of social standing is secure, like British aristocrats, you know, traditionally swore a lot. And so did lower class people who just didn't care. So yes, it's a very bourgeois thing. The high and the low have nothing to lose, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, fuck me up the ass. Oh, God. <laughs> See that? I found offensive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Melissa. Okay, well, thank you. This is fun. Melissa Moore is the author of Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing. It's out now from Oxford University Press. Uh, Mike, I, before we go, I just have to ask you something that goes all the way back to the beginning of the show and the complaint from the listener about our gratuitously salty language, and I I think she mainly means mine. I am indeed foul-mouthed in my personal life. It's something that I haven't been ashamed of. I take actually a rather perverse pride in it for reasons that I can't necessarily explain. I'm wondering if, if there's anything we've heard today that should make me rethink my potty mouth. Well, I don't know about necessarily rethinking, but I actually have a theory. I think you're afraid, and I'll tell you what of. Melissa Moore touched on this, but she goes into more detail about it in the book. This idea that historically both the lofty and the unwashed were free, in a sense, to swear because their social standing was either secure or non-existent, right? And I think this still holds true to some extent today. In other words, it's the special burden of the middle class for whom the stakes are highest to care about what others think. And your greatest fear is to be seen as someone who cares, someone caught up in the kind of petty moralizing of the bourgeoisie. Hmm. That could be it, or it could just be cheap laughs. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. 
All right. Well, if you want to hurl some obscenities our way, please do so at SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. That's SlateLexiconValley at gmail.com. You can find all the past episodes of our show at Slate.com slash LexiconValley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Melissa Moore. Her book is called Holy Shit, A Brief History of Swearing. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey, we done here? We are done. Later, Gator. Hey, this is Mike. For those of you still listening, here's a challenge. I used a word at some point during this podcast that turns out is not a word. I misspoke. What is it?